This is Scott Mann, and you are listening to the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is David Bollier, author of numerous books about the commons, which is the topic for this show. This is something that initially was a little hard to wrap my head around, so rather than try to define it here, I'll let David's description a few minutes into the conversation do this subject proper justice. In addition to defining what the commons are, we also discuss property and property rights, including intellectual property and things like Linux and free and open source software, the role we have in managing shared resources, both finite and renewable, and how permaculture practitioners can work to create mainstream change through grassroots efforts and alliances. One thing I bring up during the interview is the tragedy of the commons, an article written by Garrett Hardin in the 1960s, which was my first named introduction to this idea and what the commons are, how they can be damaged, and what we can do to protect them. I recommend reading that piece because of the impact it has had on several generations of conservationists, land managers, environmentalists, and ultimately permaculture practitioners. You'll find a link in the show notes. When you do read it, don't hold on to what you find there too tightly, however, as things change pretty quickly in this conversation with David. As we get started, if you enjoy this podcast, become a listener member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Your support is vital to the continuation of this program. Now then, on to David Bollier. I'll join you afterwards with a class announcement, my thoughts, and some updates. Then, David, if you can tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, and your work with the Commons and how you came to it, and we can take the conversation from there. Sure. Well, I uh, have been a long-time activist, and I spent many years in Washington, mostly with Ralph Nader and other public interest groups. And at the time, I was my friends and I were mostly doing what I would now call in, uh, fighting enclosures of the commons, in which various corporations or industries were trying to privatize and commodify things that we share that belong to all of us, ranging from the airwaves, which are used for free by broadcasters, or uh, federally financed drug research, which is patented by drug companies, and then they charge a whole lot of money for the drugs. Public lands, you know, uh, minerals, uh, grazing lands, forests, all of which industry tends to use for highly discounted rates, below market rates. I came to see all of these different things going on, and it wasn't until the 1990s that really I discovered the language of the commons as a way for talking about some of these things which our political culture doesn't talk about. But to give more background on myself, I worked for many years for the television producer Norman Lear as a political advisor to him. Since the early 2000s, have been working almost exclusively on commons-related issues, meaning trying to make sense of a lot of political activity and activist projects in terms of the principles of the commons. Then did your work as a political advisor come from your education or an early career? Well, I had my first uh, job out of college was with a congressman from Connecticut, Toby Moffat, and I worked in Congress for a couple of years. You know, I did a lot of Washington policy and activist-related projects, and that's really what set me on my course, that ultimately leading to my work on the commons. Along the way, I became very interested in tech and Internet issues, and I saw how copyright law was being used to privatize and control all sorts of culture and knowledge and scientific information. This led me in 2002 to uh, co-found a Washington advocacy group called Public Knowledge, which is dedicated to uh, protecting the openness and accessibility of both media systems and cultural works and information. So that was another contributing force to my getting into the commons because I realized that property rights were starting to uh, come into serious conflict with a lot of democratic rights and values and the freedoms that we have, should have, to uh, create and, and reuse our cultural inheritance. So those are some of the influences that really uh, got me interested in the commons. I could take this conversation in a completely different direction away from permaculture because my background is originally in technology and I was a computer science major in the 90s and used a lot of free and open source software and have been a longtime advocate for, you know, freeware and sharing of information and ideas electronically. And I know that there's places where we run up into 
issues of intellectual property rights and the idea that you know information needs to be free. Uh, what is the appropriate length for a copyright for someone who develops intellectual property versus when it should revert to the populace at large that helped that person reach that point that created it? These things are not so far-fetched from, say, permaculture or seeds or other issues because there's a lot of issues there where the same sorts of privatization of community-generated knowledge is occurring. So that that was actually a very formative influence for me in in learning how intellectual property, which is in in a way a a contrived, made-up field of property rights, which is not self-evident or natural, but highly political, you know, those same dynamics of political contention are at play in many, many different realms, uh, many different resources. It makes me think about how the, the public discourse about these issues influences the ways that we see the distinction between private property and public interest. Yes. I mean, in, in some ways, a lot of people think that property is a self-evident category, that it just fell from the sky or has always existed. But in fact, there's many different ways we can structure property rights. Currently, corporate interests, large concentrated industries have a keen interest on having as expansive property rights as they can. I mean, they have, for example, claimed trademark rights in common words. There's even... Um, trademarks and smells and certain colors, just as an example. And there's, all, there's patent rights in uh, life forms and genes and uh, nanomatter that's synthetically created. And this is an example of the enclosure of the commons where industries, investors, use property rights to push it out as far as possible so that they can uh, maximize their private monetary gains. And this is, is of course, a major threat to many of the resources that we share in common. I mean, should should a corporation be able to own a life form that's not only morally repugnant, but it diminishes the ability of other people to do research or to innovate with their own products? So it goes, there's a whole wealth of issues raised by the character and definition of property rights. Could you give us a background on what the commons are for those who this might be the first time that they've really heard this term applied to, well, such a broad range of topics and subjects from the land to intellectual ideas? Well, you know, it helps to think, if you think in economics about markets, well, tell me what a market is. Well, you can give a general definition to a market, but we all know that the stock market or a hardware store or a lemonade stand or a commodity futures market, they're all very different things, yet we all call them the market. Well, in, in a similar way, the commons can apply to many different phenomena, and it really is essentially about, it's a social system in which a group of people have decided they want to manage a certain resource collectively for the common good in a way that's transparent, fair, and inclusive and sustainable. So it's kind of a, it's not just a resource as economists often refer to commons. It's a social system with its own distinct set of rules and protocols and traditions and customs and values for managing a resource for the benefit of all. That's maybe the the simplest general definition. And of course, that can be applied to many different phenomena from the atmosphere to cultural works and scientific knowledge to urban spaces to uh, a wide variety of natural resources. One of the first introductions I know for myself, and I imagine probably also many of the listeners, to the idea of the commons comes from uh, Garrett Hardin's essay, The Tragedy of the Commons. And I was wondering if this is something that you could comment on from your perspective and your work. This whole idea of the tragedy of the commons has been drilled into undergraduates multiple times and reinforced by economists and conservative ideologues to put forward the idea that really private property rights are the only answer to our problems. And Hardin had this famous essay in 1968 in the journal called Science, in which he asked us to imagine a pasture in which many farmers had their sheep or cattle grazing. And he said that if if everybody tries to maximize their own individual gain, that pasture will be overgrazed and ruined resulting in the so-called tragedy of the commons. Now, the only problem with this whole idea is that he was not really describing the commons because the commons has intact, stable community with rules for monitoring the resource and managing it. 
and for preventing free riders or uh, vandals from abusing the resource. Cardin was describing really an open access regime or a free-for-all in which there are no rules and no constraints on how the resource is used. And so while this phenomenon does in fact occur, I think it's more accurately applied to the market, the so-called free market, where there are often no rules and there are abuses of uh, shared resources. But a commons really is a distinctly different kind of phenomena than Hardin was describing. So in effect, this was really a kind of a smear of what the commons and a misrepresentation of what a commons is, because in, in fact, as uh, many others have shown through empirical work, it's entirely possible for people to manage even finite depletable resources like fisheries or forest or irrigation water to manage them sustainably without over-exploiting them. So this is really a, a sort of a cultural barrier that many of us who believe in the commons have to uh, overcome. So in some ways, the example that Hardin provides is really a, a false exploration of the idea of the commons because it's ascribing a definition to something that isn't really the definition of what is meant by this common resource that we all share in and therefore would wish to protect. Precisely. And in fact, Hardin himself, while he was still alive, after criticism, said that he was really describing an unmanaged commons. Well, that's kind of a contradiction in terms uh, because the commons is managed. And he was describing simply the resource without taking into account the social system. I mean, the tragedy of the commons idea is often linked to so-called prisoner dilemma experiments where social scientists try to replicate how people will act in their own self-interest or behave altruistically. And the problem with many of those experiments, at least the earlier ones, was that they assumed that every all of us were isolated individuals who were rational, calculating economic creatures the way homo economicus says we are, the idea that that's the way human beings are. But in real life, people talk to each other. They negotiate solutions that can work for, for everyone, or at least they often try to. They don't always succeed. And it was uh, Eleanor Ostrom, a political scientist in Indiana, who spent much of her life and career exploring this, who helped really rebut Garrett Hardin's tragedy thesis through extensive field work uh, around the world and creative theorizing. And for her work, she won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2009. It was really a major achievement and recognition of how the commons can work and does work. And Eleanor's work resulted in governing the commons and her eight principles of managing the commons. Is that what you're referring to? Her 1990 book was called Governing the Commons. It was about, the, the subtitle was The Evolution of Institutions for Collective Action. And she had studied in a quite empirical way, which most economists don't, don't do as much empirical work. She studied how commons, mostly in small-scale natural resource settings, in uh, rural settings in, in, around the world, how they evolve, how they work. And she identified eight key design principles for successful commons, things like having a bounded community. You know who's in the commons and who's not you uh, have certain monitoring rules for the resource. You uh, have certain punishments against those who violate those rules so that the resource is protected and so forth. So uh, these are kind of, uh, they're not, it's not like a blueprint for successful commons, but they're general guidelines that tend to exist for maintaining a successful commons. The big question that I come to in having these models for how to care for and maintain commons is there a point where you can identify where this structure within society and the commons begins to break down historically, where this change occurred? There has always been people who want to try to appropriate the value that others create. And I think that the rise of industrial society was the beginning of this because it helped break apart many of the old traditions of community and tradition and solidarity that uh, had previously governed society. And uh, over time, this whole notion of capitalist individualism has arisen, which essentially tries to deny the reality of social community uh, and to cast all of us into roles as either producers or consumers and as individuals who have little to do with each other necessarily and tries to deny some of these deeper currents of 
common humanity and solidarity and, let's say, cooperation and mutual support that the commons represents. So, you know, Karl Polanyi, the anthropologist and economist, helped describe this transition from a world of commons to a market culture and what a profound shift in worldview and uh, social practice and ethics that that entailed. A lot of what we've touched on so far in this conversation points to some of the big questions and explorations that the permaculture community is currently going through because a lot of our information and knowledge within this system of design, this framework, comes from indigenous cultures, whether those were you know, early horticultural societies or prior to that um, hunter-gatherer societies. But within those conversations, there's this idea of shared resources, of tending the land, of mutual support. And now as we look to try to build any kind of community around these kinds of ideas, it seems like all the structures that have been built over the last two or three generations in particular make it almost impossible to do so unless we kind of remove ourselves from society as much as we can and move to areas where there's land available inexpensively and be able to be in an unincorporated municipality of some kind that doesn't have building or subdivision ordinances in order to create something of value, but then in doing so that that removes us from the areas where this information and work is most needed? You've asked a number of questions all in one there. In the sense that I think that what permaculture has created over generations is really invaluable, which is uh, this very uh, rich and deep ethic and set of practices, as well as the community, that has a very different relationship to nature than uh, market players do. It thinks and acts holistically and with respect for living systems, as living systems. That's huge. But in terms of your other part of your question about how this can be brought to the mainstream culture where it's most needed, especially, say, urban areas, that truly is a challenge, but I think that really will require permaculture to go beyond simply its its horticulture practices, but into political economy and to perhaps make common cause with uh, adjacent movements like the cooperative movement and things like community land trust and cooperative finance as ways to make it sustainable within sometimes hostile urban or market environments. Now, that's a whole larger, different discussion, but I think it's perhaps key to the future of of permaculture in making itself viable and not simply in a niche on the, the far periphery of our culture. That's what initially occurs to me when you pose that proposition, but you shouldn't make any mistake that permaculture has a huge amount to offer in terms of its ethic and culture and uh, knowledge and relationship towards nature. To take these two realms with all that they share, how do you see permaculture folks being able to address this privatization and enclosure of the commons in order to be able to bring more of that back to the people? Well, I think that it will require new types of institutions that can, first of all, acquire the land and in places where it can benefit people more. And as you know, there's a whole local food movement that has many different dimensions from the relocalization movement, the community-supported agriculture, and different types of co-ops and the slow food movement. And I think that within those worlds, there's probably many allies who would make common cause with the permaculture world in helping move their shared values together forward. But I think that this will require some greater affirmative attention to the finance and institutional structures to move it forward. And in the course of it, I think that the permaculture world will have to start to grapple with the political economy more as it is and the threats that market culture per se, poses to the ideals of permaculture. Because there are so many of these different types of movements that are struggling with similar issues, I think there's a great potential for synergies. You know, get the transition town movement involved and many of these others. I think there's a huge uh, synergy that could be exploited. I frankly don't know the state of some of those conversations. I, I suppose it varies from one region to another around the country. 
it very much does. And it's as permaculture has grown over the almost 40 years since its beginning, there are now these different groups that have arisen from permaculture, such as the Tradition Town movement, that many of those members aren't necessarily steeped in these earliest beginnings or are familiar with uh, permaculture as one of those foundational pieces. And now they kind of stand on their own that perhaps there is a place there where we can begin to network more and reconnect with some of these different groups that kind of came from this wellspring. I think that would be extremely valuable because I think permaculture has such really, I think, depth and subtlety of understanding that many of the newer movements could benefit from this. I think that, you know, ultimately this is, I think, about culture and social practice. And we're going to have to create some new hybrids to go forward. But those people who are steeped in the permaculture tradition, I think, really would have a lot to contribute to these other movements. And I would imagine many of these other movements would welcome some of those insights and ideas But, you know, we are at a new frontier politically and culturally, and uh, (laughs) we need all the mutual support and allies we can get going forward. There are two images that come from that. One is of of permaculture lobbyists and folks putting on their suits and going to Washington with um, their political contributions and, you know, sitting down with lawmakers and having conversations directly, which is something that I I don't know we've engaged in a lot lately, that kind of direct political, like, one-to-one activism. I would take issue that that's necessarily the answer because, I mean, I, I think that many of the traditional legislative policy answers are non-starters if only because our system is so corrupted by campaign finance that, you know, yes, uh, we need to do that kind of work, but it's not necessarily going to yield the best result, the most lasting results. That said, there are many opportunities for non-policy-driven advances uh, that that work out, you know, uh, in for example, establishing one's own land and farms, and working uh, locally or regionally with allies to help develop a new type of food system. For example, there's a group in uh, Fresno that started the Fresno Commons, which is trying to reimagine the entire uh, food chain, value-added food chain, for from growing to distribution to retail, which is an attempt to uh, without the benefit of policy as such, reinvent value for people and to take some, some of these uh, growing practices to new places in ways that are, that are financially sustainable. So I think that locally, there's a lot of opportunities for working within the cracks and in some ways, using social community and solidarity to outcompete markets with quality, better care for the land, better care for workers. And, you know, that community engagement can go a long way without having to get on your suit and go to Washington and fight a losing battle or fight a winning battle that's reversed next year. So I would just urge people to consider those self-help solutions on a community basis that uh, are probably going to be more lasting. Not to sound too cliched, but by working through those cracks in building with our allies, we return to kind of like a grassroots power to the people kind of approach by working in parallel with some of the existing systems or even outside of them? Think of how the local food movement has transformed so much of industrial agriculture and food simply by creating a different center of gravity of its own moral and ecological integrity. And consider that versus going to Congress and trying to win those same things. I think rediscovering the power of uh, grassroots collaboration in local, real settings, as opposed to abstract policy arenas, I think that's the way to revive and reinvigorate the movement. Because at a certain point, the power and integrity of those alternative examples can't be ignored by the mainstream, including politics. And we can see how this happened with the Occupy movement. We can see how this happened with Linux and free and open source software. You create this alternative center of gravity that has its own effectiveness and loyalty and cultural and moral depth. That's a way of advancing the political agenda as well. And policy will, I think, eventually have to take aware, uh, cognizance of it and, and then begins the fight over co-optation versus success. <laughs> One of the continual thoughts in the back of my mind is about agency capture and, you know, in the public policy sphere, how that can occur versus like with our grassroots organizations. But 
as long as the right people are involved, it can keep something like that from happening. Well, and as long as there is a, a really a grassroots base of certain depth and commitment, that's a, a good um, a good way to help prevent co-optation or you know the movement getting off its tracks. And in fact, one could say that that's really the story of conventional mainstream progressive politics. I think it's lost track of its grassroots and eventually just sort of went with the flow because everybody wanted to be considered credible and mainstream. They didn't want to be considered peripheral or marginal. There's a certain point where you simply have to go back to the roots and rebuild and build your integrity from that because that's really the strongest place you can anchor your feet for future political action. We've gone, as is usual, during interviews like this in a direction that I hadn't expected to be touching on so much about the organizational roots that we need to develop and the allies to partner with in order to build political power, particularly locally and as part of putting together this larger, broader community. With your background in the commons and work that you've been doing over the last several decades, is there anything in particular that you would like to add to this conversation for the listeners to make sure that we have a good understanding of this idea and the topics at hand specific to permaculture or generally to our culture and society? One reason that I find the commons uh, attractive is it it's kind of a, a meta-language that, it, first of all, asserts a different logic and ethic than the prevailing, let's just say, free market uh, discourse, for one, or even I would go further, even more than uh, liberals uh, do, because even American liberals tend to believe in the whole mythology of constant economic growth, you know, human progress through technology and individuals uh, as the privileged unit of talking about things and not, not really thinking about collective, collectively devised solutions. So one, the commons helps assert these different logic and says that, no, certain things shouldn't be sold in the market. Certain things should be inalienable. And there are different ways to create value than through market exchange, the commons being one of them. And we see that extensively in the digital world where all sorts of values created with neither the market nor the state directly involved. So the commons as a language helps assert this different value proposition, but it is general enough that all sorts of different factions that are often isolated and not in communication with each other can begin to see that they're all, for example, victims of uh, market predation that they all share general values about the importance of community, ecological protection, and limits on markets. So what I'm suggesting is the commons can be kind of a staging area for bringing together diverse factions and finding how collectively they have a lot more in common than they do apart. They can and should get out of their silos and recognize their, you might say, their identities as commoners. Uh, a term that is, uh, you know, is is used extensively in Europe. I, I do a lot of work with European activists, and I have to say, they are far ahead of Americans in understanding some of these issues, and in using the vocabulary and concepts of the Commons to resist, to protect their shared resources, and to build new sorts of politics. And I think that's essentially the agenda that we have to uh, tackle in the United States as well. And I think that the common discourse gives us a way to start to, uh, to think about that and to start building that alternative world. I think about that role of language and the various cultural myths, especially within the American context. Something that you touched on uh, with slightly different language earlier is that idea of like the rugged individual. And I think of something that I keep coming back to is my grandfather was a farmer in many ways, perhaps one of the most mythologized ideas of an individual who can be out there on their own, being able to feed their family and, and take care of themselves because of all the resources of the farm while still returning something then to the market for sale without necessarily acknowledging all the other people and systems that were necessary to keep that farm running, like calling the welder to come in and to fix a plow if it broke, or someone who was familiar with small engine repair if something happened to the tractor. There may have been certain places where 
the farmer or my grandfather were more self-sufficient than those who were living in the city, but they still depended on the give and take of all of the different systems within their community in order to do what it is that they did. I think that as Americans, we're confronting some of these myths and their limits because, you know, the much celebrated individualism is often just a sham because we find that extreme market culture which casts us as consumers, for example, tends to be hugely alienating and separates us from each other. And it doesn't acknowledge how much we live in a world of social and ecological interdependency, which interdependencies we need to start to acknowledge, especially in this world of climate change, because it's precisely this other cultural outlook and behavior that has been aggravating so many of our ecological problems. I think the commons helps us start to name something that hasn't been named or fully recognized, and it helps us begin to uh, use that in, in more constructive ways instead of just beating endlessly on so-called individual solutions when, in fact, even the most rugged individual is dependent upon the market these days, and markets tend to be more concentrated and uh, exploitative than ever before. So. I think the the answer is a lot of uh, mutual support, cooperation, and sharing as ways to build new types of production and self-governance uh, at a time when the market and the state are really captured allies, unholy allies who are really uh, not necessarily serving the bulk of the uh, the people anymore. That's something that I think the Commons helps us address. Addressing that idea of the market and the state and how a good solid foundation of a grassroots organization can help move all of these policies and things along. It reminds me of a story that I heard last night that General Mills is now removing like all of their artificial colors and preservatives and sweeteners from their product lines because of this push for more transparency in the food system, less artificial ingredients, and more organic products that the consumer's choices are beginning to change the large corporations. And I'm wondering how moving forward, if we're able to push more of these issues to the forefront, that can then in turn change not only that relationship between the markets and government, but ultimately the markets and government themselves. I think absolutely. I mean, you, you cite a very good example. I think increasingly, uh, especially as social communities can make themselves visible and influential through the internet, corporations are having to respond. And this was, you know, in the pre-internet world, that wasn't as possible. So I think that we do have capacities we didn't have in terms of asserting different consumer demand. That said, I think there are limits so long as industry is as concentrated as it is, especially in the food sector. And um, we need to start exploring both the local alternatives to save on uh, fossil fuel use and other ecological problems, but to have greater access and social equity through local systems that maybe are cooperatively owned or uh, at least locally responsible businesses as opposed to ones that are responsible to foreign investors who simply want to see our locality as a, as a financial colony to be exploited. So I think it's great that we can assert our cultural strength versus the food industry, but I think we need to also start imagining different systems for producing, distributing, and consuming food than we've had because the existing system, because it's so concentrated, has a disproportionate political influence and therefore affects policy and law and courts in ways that structurally are against our interests. So just, I'm simply amplifying on your point that, yes, we need to go back to the grassroots and build up our power with integrity from that, uh, that location. And looking at many of these issues that are currently occurring with food or the justice system and many other realms of our cultural arenas, that what we're working against are systemic issues and needing to find those leverage points where we can create and affect the most change. It's absolutely systemic, and that's what we need to come to terms with. And so much of the focus on the individual, for example, will not get at those structural systemic issues. And the only effective responses will be collective ones because it's a collective problem in the first place. 
you know, that's, again, why I think the comments are something to contribute to this dialogue, because it's about initiating a new set, a new set of terms of debate and new systemic critiques, as opposed to working within the framework that is so mainstream today, which simply doesn't have the vocabulary, the concepts to name certain problems. Uh, in some ways, you have to be able to break the frame if we're going to move beyond it. And, uh, you know, working outside of the frame of neoliberal capitalism and uh, electoral democracy as we know it today, i.e. compromised, corrupt, is not going to work. And therefore, we need to sort of work beyond that frame and develop this alternative sensibility and critique if we're going to uh, effectively address systemic problems. That corruption in policy and media and that focus on the individual, as I think about it, I I look at all the times where individuals are the ones who are being protested against or blamed for what's occurring when many times that person is just as captured by the system as the problem that the protesters or others are trying to address. I think that's true, and I think so long as we work only with an existing policy-making arenas, which are so dominated and controlled by the, the uh, corporate sector, that we're not going to prevail. Yes, we need to be active in those areas, but yes, we need to start instituting these different approaches. You know, many of the established public interest and environmental advocacy groups, unfortunately, are so locked into playing their part in this kabuki theater charade of policy that they can only win incremental small gains and they don't have the political clout to go forward. I think part of the problem is our very governance structures that we need to sort of move beyond. And that was the message of Occupy. That's been the message of all these uh, European countries where there have been a protest in the city squares. So I think we need to start having a discussion about how governance can be made more responsive and accountable and transparent because the existing system clearly is not delivering that and reforming it from within the inside has distinct limits. You've given a lot for me to think about coming out of this interview and how to apply many of the things that you shared with us today. In beginning to draw this interview to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners, any recommendations for them on how they might proceed? Well, let me just mention my website and book. Well, I have a number of books in the Commons. My website is called uh, bollier.org, B-O-L-L-I-E-R.org. And my book that introduces the commons is called Think Like a Commoner, A Short Introduction to the Life of the Commons. But there, there is a larger literature. Some of it is scholarly, but much of mine has been more focused on the political dimensions of the commons. I would just encourage listeners to you know, explore the dimension of the commons and think how it may apply to their lives or to permaculture or other things that are important to them. You know, if you start to think about what do we share in common that is being taken over or jeopardized by private property or market forces, there's a lot. And I think the only way we can start to address this is to, to develop our own collective responses through different types of commons. And I think we are starting to see many of these in water uh, resistance against water privatization and digital arenas and a lot of local food areas. But I think we need to intensify and expand these because I think that's going to have more hope for the future than a lot of conventional paths of political resistance or even uh, uh, legislation. Well, thank you, David, for joining me today and providing an alternative perspective on how to approach many of these issues. Because for me, so often... It's been about getting engaged directly with what currently exists and to take a very mainstream response to this. And you've, in many ways, bolstered the direction in which to go in order to help grow many of these uh, currently nascent organizations and grassroots efforts. So thank you for your time today and everything you've shared and giving me a new perspective on where to go. Well, it's a pleasure. I mean, I, th I think I would just leave with a word that, you know, the more you get into this, the more energizing it becomes. And if you just take this small step and start to, to move in that direction, you find there are many more people who feel similarly. And that's precisely the kind of uh, 
feeling that has kept me studying the commons for the past 15 years or more. I just urge people to give it a try because I think there are some genuine solutions there as opposed to another setup for disappointment through conventional paths. So thanks for having me on the show. And that was David Bollier. You will find more about him, his work, and a series of articles at his website, bollier.org. While you're there, you can also see his books on the commons and pick some up to expand your understanding of all the resources we share together and should manage in community with one another. Before heading to my thoughts and other announcements, a reminder that Dave Jackie is teaching a nine-day intensive course on forest garden design from October 2nd through the 11th, 2015 at Feathered Pipe Ranch in Montana. This is the first time in three years that this course has been offered in the United States. The all-inclusive class allows students to learn how to mimic forest ecosystems that include a number of valuable characteristics, including stability and resilience, which is incredibly important with the current weather weirding that is occurring as a result of climate change. As with the recent interviews with Dave Jackie have expressed, you can also expect this course to explore the human side of design, including the social and economic elements, what for so long have been considered the invisible structures of permaculture, but that we are quickly realizing are just as vital to the design process. Participants will also have the opportunity to create multiple forest garden designs, including one for the course site, Feathered Pipe Ranch, as well as for the Sixth Ward Forest Garden Park to be installed in Helena. You'll find a link to this course, which is being held in cooperation with Inside Edge Design, in the show notes, or by clicking on upcoming events at InsideEdgeDesign.com. Regarding what David and I spoke about today, I've been thinking about the last several weeks, when I've been combing through my library and getting back into reading some of the books that I consider classics for my own education, in preparation for working my way through some new-to-me material on permaculture, the environment, and education. It is in that last place that I was brought back to David Orr's writing in Earth in Mind, a collection of essays that focus on education, environment, and the human prospect. If you've never read it, though it's been over 20 years since the first edition, and over 10 since the 10th anniversary update that I have in my library, I recommend getting a copy. David Orr looks at a variety of issues using education as the common language, similar to how in permaculture we use the landscape as our point of reference. But what really frames the various pieces of Mr. Orr's writing are the environment and communities, that very human element. At one point, David Orr looks at how, just as David Bollier points out, the Industrial Revolution changed our interaction with the environment, one another, and the connections that we share by being in community Though we've always used resources as a species, the last several hundred years have changed the scope and scale of our ability to extract materials from the environment and in turn to change the world around us. What once took generations can now be accomplished in less than a human lifetime. Where before we had to rely on one another, the culture we live in now allows us to disconnect as much as we can afford to do so. We don't have to build long-term relationships with Earth or the people near us. We can take from some far-off place or hire the services and skills of anyone willing to do the work, and in turn feel insulated and isolated in our personal castle, whatever the form it takes. With that, many of us also have the social and economic mobility to pick up and go somewhere else if the place we currently inhabit, for some reason, no longer suits us. This leads to us no longer having to establish a sense of place, where we're connected or rooted. Based on this conversation with David Bollier, and rereading David Orr, I'm reminded that there are no externalities. As much as that phrase may get used to label pollution and other unaccounted for costs of industrial production, there are inherent costs with everything that we do, even if they don't wind up on the balance sheet somewhere. And it is our disconnection from place and each other that allows for so much environmental and ecological devastation. We don't have to care about where we live or the people around us anymore because of that loss of community. Society and culture move forward at a scale that still sees the world as infinite, and only the moment that we currently live in, not considering the long-term temporal impacts of what we do, and that allows the ongoing extraction of resources rather than looking to regenerative practices, and also allows the economic subjugation of others so that the resources we do care about go unmanaged for the rest of us. And the dirty work of developed society can be cast off to those less fortunate by virtue of forces they have no control over, simply by being born in a different situation and a different place. But at the same time, as those who have control over 
natural resources and economic forces. That leads to a systemic roadblock that allows mountaintops to be removed to extract coal, giant strip mines to be sunk into the land creating scars on the landscape, water to be polluted or sequestered away because of hydraulic fracturing, and waste being exported and dumped in foreign lands for other people to deal with rather than the culture that created that refuse or allows for indigenous cultures and ways of living to be forced to change by economic forces, all in the name of the market and capitalism, which creates a narrative hegemony as the story we are told and accept is the only way, yet feel very deeply that something isn't right. We as permaculture practitioners have a way to show the world what can be done to make a world where all can live, not just human beings, but all life, and that we can thrive abundantly and in a land that we care for and in return cares for us. We know the landscape. That's part of the initial attraction for many to permaculture. There's a formative experience that we have that makes us care, which is something we talked about some in the round table with Charles Eisenstein, Dave Jackie, and Ben Weiss. For me, it was about family and the people around me. For others, it was a connection directly to the land. And that's great. Let's keep that up. Continue to grow food where we are especially for those of you who are good at getting your hands into the earth and creating it in quantities large enough to feed not only yourselves, but your neighbors, for the permaculture farmers and folks doing broad-scale application. But there are so many other places for us to plug in, as David Bollier explicitly referred to in this conversation. And I look to the community organizers who are good at building networks and connecting to go and begin forging alliances with our neighboring and related movements, to go and find out the ways that we can be allies to people who are already resident in place, while also pulling in the transition towners, the slow foodies, and the slow money investors. But there's more to it than that. I'm often asked, how can I apply permaculture to my life? Or how can I create a permaculture living for myself? And so far the models have been about going and teaching or becoming a designer. But I still think that the best way that we can take this material to the places where it's needed is by applying permaculture to the place where we already are, where we have our education, our experience, and our background. There are engineers and architects who listen to this show and who are interested in permaculture. So I challenge you to design systems and products in homes that have life cycles that account from the creation to the eventual recycling, disassemble, or destruction of something. How can we do more with the embodied energy of what we create? I was always a big fan of Linux and free and open source software because it would run on some of the oldest hardware available based on the distribution. Something like Minix, if I remember right, was one floppy disk. At one point, I was running off of an old monochrome 286 laptop, and I was able to do real work with it. So software engineers and programmers, how can we extend the life of our devices? Rather than increasing the size and bloat of things, how can we streamline software to make it more useful and run for longer, rather than on this current three to five year replacement cycle? Especially for something like the mobile world, where if you're a version or two behind on Android, some of the apps you're used to using no longer run and put you in a place where if that's something that's very useful to you, it almost seems like the upgrade is required. But what about doctors and nurses, physicians assistants and nurse practitioners? How can caring for our health be made more accessible and use less non-renewable resources? I ask because a recent news report on local talk radio addressed how many plastics and disposables are used in healthcare. What about sterilizing and recycling after use? How can we change where that waste goes? And what happens to all those needles that go into a sharps container? Are they just thrown away? Lawyers, legislators, judges, people who are involved in the creation of laws and the legal system. What can we do to allow permaculture to be practiced more readily and to make the things we want to do no longer illegal? Where are the leverage points where we can work outside the system without risking everything that we have to fines or prosecution? For those who work in service sectors, from food to entertainment, how can the work you do be made to fall more in line with the ethics of this system of design we call permaculture? As a community of practitioners, we are not alone in our practices and have a wide variety of talents, skills, backgrounds, and experiences to pull from, but we can't do this as individuals. Together, however, we have the ability to elevate this work into a broader, stronger grassroots movement 
that can change the world for the betterment of all life and earth by tackling the many systemic issues that we face. Come join me. Let's do this. Get in touch. Let's figure out how to make all this actionable and begin to protect the commons and really truly build the world we want to live in. Call me. 717-827-6266 or email show at the permaculturepodcast.com if you have some ideas or if you're doing this kind of work i want and need to know about it so that other people can connect to what it is you're doing and so the narrative can continue to move forward and impact our own lives the communities we live in and the world at large as i prepare to end this episode a few announcements First, I'm moving the regular release day for the show to Thursdays rather than Wednesdays, with best ofs, permabytes, and other supplementary material appearing on Mondays. Second, I'm heading to Baltimore on July 11th to record an interview with Victoria of Charm City Farms to discuss the work she and her partner are doing to bring permaculture and food forests to Baltimore. July 13th, I sit down with Adam Brock as a follow-up to the recent interview with John Wages about Permaculture Design Magazine and to talk about Adam's role as a guest editor. July 29th, Toby Hemingway and I are scheduled to talk about his latest book, The Permaculture City. If you have any questions for these upcoming guests, let me know by the usual ways, or join in the conversation at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, or send me a message via Twitter where I am at permaculturecst. Finally, August 20th through the 23rd, I'll be at Radical Gathering in Bowling Green, Kentucky, running a permaculture question and answer session on Friday afternoon a community visioning workshop on Saturday morning, and delivering the Saturday night keynote address. Eric Perrow of The Push will also be there with members of his community running some workshops, and Eric is the Friday night keynote speaker. If you're in the area, come out and join in the fun of workshops, live music, and a whole bunch of people coming together to explore how to build resilient communities. Find out more at RadicalGathering.org, R-A-D-I-C-L-E Gathering.org. Up next week is a two-person interview, with Dr. David Blumenkrantz, along with Jen Mendez of Permi Kids, to discuss rites of passage and initiatory experiences with youth in community development and education. And that episode will be out on Thursday, July 16th. Until then, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>